uh, a series of little bits of advice on the year of welcome for the last couple months. And uh, I'm going to share something that you should have already read because I sent it in an email yesterday. How many of you read the letter I sent in my email? Good. So about 45 or 50% of the people I send the letter to actually open it. So I'm, I'm going to share this with the rest of you. And if you don't get my email, then just on the card in front of you, jot your name and your email address down. And at the bottom or on the back or something, say, sign me up. And I'll, I'll make sure you're on the, the email list. So... Uh, in the last year we've been talking, or last uh, few months, we've been talking about this idea of year of welcome. And uh, this is my, my conversation seat, not my preaching seat. This is, this is uh, let's have a, a talk, church, kind of a, a, a conversation. So we're talking about being a welcoming church. And we've talked about a few key ideas. I've shared a couple others, but here's the three key ones. And they're questions I've asked you to ask. The first question is a question I want you to ask while you're in the car driving. Now, if you don't drive in a car here and you walk, um, I pity you, but um, <laughs> most of us drive. So as you're driving, I want you to have this thought in your mind and this prayer in your mind. Lord, who do you want me to connect with today? Who do you want me to connect with today? Do you know, in the last couple of years, pretty much every single week, we have somebody new walk through our doors. Have you noticed that? People that you aren't aware of. Um, that you haven't made friends with yet. And so if you're new here and you feel a need for a connection, um, then the, the goal is that somebody who's not new here will notice that you're new and will make a connection. But in order to do that, we have to be aware and paying attention. So I'm asking you to ask that question, Lord, who do you want me to connect with today? And let the Holy Spirit guide you to that person and an opportunity to connect and talk and, and uh, experience a friendship. And then the second question I've asked you to, to ask is another prayer. Lord, who's missing? Who's missing that needs a word of encouragement? Maybe it's somebody who's sick. Maybe they're just out on vacation. Maybe they are gone for one reason or another that's, uh, that, that there's a disconnect in friendship. And so I'm asking you to pray. Lord, who needs me to connect with them and encourage them? And uh, there's a, a new box in the back, if you haven't noticed it yet. Uh, it's, it's got these little cards in them that you can fill out. If you look around and you say, I haven't seen so-and-so for a week or two, then jot their name down. Even if you don't know their address, jot their name down on a card, say, missed you, praying for you, really glad to know you, or whatever it is that you want to say that the Lord puts on your heart, and uh, put it in that little box, and it will be mailed that week. We'll make sure it gets mailed out to them. And then the third, the third question is kind of a thought question. As you walk through the doors of the sanctuary, I want you to ask yourself the question, how can I make myself, as I interact with this space, how can I make it more welcoming for other people? How can I make this space more welcoming? How can I position myself so others can feel welcome here? So all of these are really important things, and there's probably a few others we could talk about, but they're important for... People who decide that they're going to walk through our doors um, to, to make them know that we want them to be here and that we want them to be part of our family. But I want you to think about this idea. If we are only waiting for people to walk through our doors, then we are requiring them to be the missionaries. If we are waiting for them to come to us, then we are waiting for them to be missionaries. 
You see, a missionary is somebody who engages in culture and brings the gospel of the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to somebody in their culture. And what we're asking people to do when they walk through our doors is to interact and engage with and adapt to our culture. We're asking them to be the missionaries. But God invites us to go. Jesus says, go into all the world. He invites us to be the missionaries, right? So it's not just, let's be a good, welcoming church. When people walk through our doors, we want to make sure that they know that that they're loved and cared for and that we want them here. But we also want to be welcoming people who go into all the world. And in his book, Surprise the World, really great book, you should read it, uh, Michael Frost challenges Christians to think about evangelism and mission in a different way. He says, let's not have just events or just activities of mission. Let's be missionaries, which requires us to have habits of missionaries. And uh, he talks about some interesting, some really great habits. But the first one he suggests is the idea of blessing. And blessing in the Bible, it's about uh, being nice to to somebody. It's like uh, encouraging them, saying something positive about them. Um, There's a variety of things that the Bible suggests would be blessing. We can bless God by honoring his name. We can bless others by saying nice things about them. Or in, um, It's mostly about our words, right? And so if we say bless you, it's a nice warm thought and warm words, but that's not the extent of the Bible's idea of blessing, The Bible's idea of blessing, and even the English word bless, um, has more to do with our actions than it does with our words. In fact, the English word bless means to to raise up someone's arm. Now, that's a visual that you can get your mind around, right? Blessing somebody is to raise up their arm. And you can do that by so many different ways. A word of encouragement, a note that says, I I care. Um, You could do it by simply paying for the guy behind you in the line of of the restaurant. Or, um, you know, you you can do it in so many different ways. You can help your neighbor and just, uh, you you know, they need a, a hand. You go over and give them a hand. You're lifting up their arm. You're blessing them. So I'd like to encourage a habit, and here's how we make habits. We, we make a plan, and we create kind of a routine, right? So this week, here's the new routine. I want you to plan, intentionally plan on blessing three people, lifting up their arm, okay? So one person needs to be somebody in the church. One person needs to be somebody that isn't connected to our church, and the other person can be anybody. Whether they're connected to the church or not is up to you, but three people, one that's part of the church, one that's not, and a third person from any, any direction. Do you think that's possible? That's not a big task to do, is it? It could be a phone call that says, just wanted to let you know you're valued and thought of, right? It could be anything from the simple to complex, and, and I would recommend asking God, who is it that you want me to bless this week? So here's what I'm suggesting that we do. We take our welcome and we take it into our community. Does that sound like a good idea? I'm done with my talk now. (laughs) Let's open our Bibles. I was sitting in a barber chair just this week and I was chatting with the hairdresser who is doing my hair. And uh, you know how they do. They ask the normal questions. What do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. Uh, What church? I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And there is this under-the-breath, oh, kind of response. 
and I knew I was in for something, and the conversation got a little bit awkward there for a moment, and it was kind of silent, and so I broke the silence a, a little bit later by, by asking, do you have a religious background? And she said, almost apologetically, I'm Catholic. <laughs> and so I said, um, I'm not afraid of a little bit of awkward. And so I, I stepped right into that, and I said, you sounded almost like you were sorry to be Catholic. What's, what's, about, what's that about? Tell me. And she said, well, um, and, and went into this uh, little bit of a story about her aunt, who is a Seventh-day Adventist. And her aunt likes to give them a hard time about being Catholic. And I, having a background in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I've been around here for a little while, I can imagine what those conversations might be like. Can you? And I sincerely said, I'm sorry. And that little moment of vulnerability, her sharing that and me saying I'm sorry for for that interaction, um, opened up an opportunity. And you know, I can have a conversation later about whether I should have said I'm sorry or not, but um, that's a different story. But it opened up the conversation, and it gave me an opportunity to, to explore her experience in religion. And she, she said she's not, she doesn't go to church religiously. Those are her words. And the reason that she doesn't go to church religiously is because her priest is over several parishes. I think that's the way you put it. And he goes to these different parishes at different times during the week. And she's not really quite sure when her church meets for mass. Sometimes it's on a Saturday. Sometimes it's on a Wednesday. And she's just shrugged and says, I, I don't know when. So part of it is just that she's figuring out the scheduling thing. But the other part is she's kind of not sure what about this whole religion thing to begin with. And, uh, and so I asked her, have you... Uh, ever read the Bible for yourself? And she's like, oh no. I mean, every week they just preach about the same thing. It's just a different story that comes to the exact same conclusion. And I'm ADHD, and so I've mostly fallen asleep in the sermon. If I read the Bible, I'd, I'd never get anywhere. I'd fall asleep right away. It was so clear that when she thinks of the Bible, she thinks of a boring old book that's not relevant for her life. And so what's the point? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever felt that in your life? Before finishing cutting my hair, uh, I had the opportunity to tell her um, about a resource that would help her to get into the Bible in a simple way that would be engaging and that would help her understand it a bit. And she seemed curious. So I wrote the details on the back of a a blank receipt and she stuffed it in her pocket. And I think she was, I think she was a little bit curious. If you look back in history, you'll find that uh, the subject of how Christians should do church, should do Christianity, um, is embroiled with lots and lots of tradition. Over the years, the church kind of abandoned the Bible as the source of truth and started to rely on, on, on traditions of the church as the source of truth. And I know we look back and we judge and we wag our fingers, but you have to admit that we are prone to the same things. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a young denomination, but I know that you know that we have our own traditions that aren't based in the Bible. Like, why do we call taco salad haystacks, right? (laughs) 
we got our own traditions. And, uh, and so we can't wag our finger too badly, even though we understand that they shouldn't have done that. So they, they sideline the Bible, and what ends up happening is superstition and church tradition replace the truth of God in the Bible. And, and by the, the 16th century, 1500s, you've got a group of people. Martin Luther was one of them. You know his name. John Calvin was another. Tyndale and Wycliffe and Huss and Jerome and a bunch of others. We call them the Protestant reformers. And these were guys that were part of the church, but they recognized there's a problem. And they see the greed and pride and so many other sins that the, the traditions of the church are perpetuating. And they say, this can't be. And they spend time in the Bible and realize the Bible is the only rule of authority for the church. It's the only basis for doctrine. It's the only thing that should be our guide for how we should behave and how we should do church. And so they began to teach something that we know today as sola scriptura, the Bible alone. The Bible alone is our source of truth. And today we benefit from their uprising, from their protest. Um, Because of their protest, and thank God for the Gutenberg Press, the Bible began to be translated. One guy, Tyndale, translated the Bible into the modern language, and he said that he would like the plowboy in the field to know the Bible better than the priest in the pulpit, which wouldn't have been hard because the priest really just used a prayer book at the time and didn't know much about the Bible. But still, he wanted the plowboy to be an expert in religion as much as the priest was. And I think that's an essential idea. The Bible is God's source of truth for you. It is not God's source of truth for me to tell you about Right? It is, it is your source of truth. But do you ever feel like that hairdresser? That the Bible must be this boring book because those sermons just sound the same every single week. Please tell me if that's the case here. Please, don't just sit there and, and bear it. Say, um, that, that little uh, form that I gave you, it's in, the, it's in the pew. There's a space in the back. Please specifically pray for, uh, and you could just put a new sermon on the subject of. (laughs) That's fine. If you have something that is burdening you that you need answers from God's word and you just need me to explore that with you, um, then put that on there and let me know about it. If you'd like anything that that, uh, you just would like to know from the Bible, feel free to tell me and I'll try to incorporate it into a sermon. Don't just be satisfied sitting there listening to the same sermon every week. But what about the Bible? Do you open the Bible and feel like, well, not just feel like, do you go to sleep after opening it? Do you read the Bible and think, I don't really understand it, or I kind of know what he's talking about, but what's the point of that? It doesn't really help me with my stuff. Does the Bible seem dry, bland, maybe irrelevant? Let's step back from religion for a minute. Let's step back from religion and just think about life. Most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would, ad- would have to admit that we have at least a little bit of dissatisfaction in our lives. 
Think about the stuff that we're dissatisfied with. Often it's our circumstances. It's uh, how much money we have. It's the house we live in, the friendships we have or don't have, especially loneliness is a big deal. Uh, maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe it's a struggle with addiction, an anger problem that gets the better of you more often than you'd like. Maybe it's a job that's probably fine but really not fulfilling Um, There's all kinds of things that we could be dissatisfied with. Maybe it's a child that's wandering on a path that you have not designed for them. It would be pretty rare if you were a person who had no regrets about decisions that you've made in the past. Or if you didn't have at least a little frustration with your physical or emotional or mental limitations. Or maybe you're confounded by the political situation that we find ourselves in here in North America or the international conflicts that we're, that we're experiencing. Maybe there's worry and anxiety that's connected with those things. You would be a very rare individual if there wasn't something in your life that you weren't dissatisfied with. So what do we do with those things? How do we relate to them? How do we rekindle the fire in that marriage relationship that just seems like a huge wedge is broken into? How do we find satisfaction in our work? Or how do you handle these difficult relationships with bosses or relatives or coworkers or whatever, or children? And and what should we think about politics and international affairs? How do we relate to those things, especially those things we have no say in? How do we relate to those? Uh, What about parenting? What about addictions? And the, the questions that we face go on and on and on. So we have solutions. There's options out there. Just pull up social media. And if you're flipping through Facebook or TikTok or, or just scrolling through Google or on YouTube, it doesn't matter. You're going to find answers to your questions. Have you noticed that? Especially the question about um, your complaining scale at home. There's all kinds of solutions to that one. Um, just, just to take a moment and click on one of those ads that promises uh, tight abs, right? <laughs> or one of those ads that says... Um, Something uh, a new one I heard was something about drinking water right before you go to bed, lose 15 pounds in two weeks or something like that. (laughs) There's all kinds of solutions. Just click on it, pay them a tiny bit of money or a lot of money, and they'll help you um, lose weight. Uh, They'll help you gain muscle. Uh, They'll help you get rich. Um, Just follow their scheme, and and you're going to solve your problems. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety. Go to your doctor, and they'll give you a piece of, uh, of, of paper that authorizes you to get some drug. And I'm, t- I'm looking at a doctor right now, <laughs> making sure I say the right thing. <laughs> so, and, and that drug will help you with your anxiety. It certainly will. It'll level out those emotions, right? And, and maybe if you've got a marriage problem, you can go to a psychologist. And that psychologist, I've got to be careful how I say this, but that psychologist might find that your problems in your marriage are tied to some trauma in the past, and they're going to help you with maybe some eye movement desensitization therapy. Again, I don't want to undermine the medicine or, the, or that particular thing. But if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, deep down in our hearts, we know that these solutions are just wrapping paper covering up our real problem. They're not actually solving our issue. If we're truly honest with ourselves, we know that losing weight, it's not going to solve our problem. It's not going to make us happy if we just look a little different or feel a little different. And taking that anxiety pill is going to smooth out our emotions, but it's not going to deal with the underlying issue. And doing some eye therapy thing might be helpful, 
but the trend in psychology is more towards separating marriages than bonding them together. And we know that that's the case because they don't really understand what love is. Wrapping paper. The solutions the world has to offer are wrapping paper to cover up the ugly problems that we all face. We all know these things, but like flies or moths, we keep going back to the bug zapper of the world's solutions, and we keep getting hurt by it. It doesn't help us. So what's the solution? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I would like to commend to you the Bible. Now, the Bible isn't a marriage manual. I'm not going to say that if you open up the Bible and start reading it, that suddenly your spouse is going to love you better or more or again. I'm not going to say that if you read the Bible, your bank account's going to grow and your finances are going to be solved, your solution to all your problems, that your addictions are just going to magically disappear. The the Bible isn't a marriage manual. It's not a parenting manual. It's not a self-help manual. It's not a money management course. It, It will not tell you how to lose weight. And it's not going to give you advice on how to vote in the next election. That's not its chief purpose. The Bible isn't a scientific textbook that's going to tell you all you want to know about quasars or CRISPR or ribonucleic acids or the geologic column. It's not going to answer those questions. You won't even find some of those things in it. And it's certainly not a personal horoscope to make sure that your day is going to go well or to tell you what decisions to make today. That's not what the Bible is supposed to do. It's not its purpose. So if it's not those things, then how can it help with any of the problems that you have in life? And what's the point if it doesn't replace those secular solutions? Let me tell you what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of stories. And it's it's not just one book. It's lots of books. It's 60 books written by 40-something authors over a period of 1,500 years. And it's... It's all kinds of different literature. It's, it's uh, narratives. It's uh, historical accounts. Uh, it has poetry. It has law codes in there. It has uh, messages and prophecies and letters. It's all kinds of different pieces of literature mashed together in one book. Uh, but, but here's the key. The Bible is messages written by people who were inspired by the holy God the creator of heaven and earth, and your father. The Bible is his message. And it's, it's a description of how God is related to people throughout history. It's not every story, but it's enough so that we know who God is and we can understand who we are. And keep in mind, the Bible isn't just a simple book. I'd love to tell you that this is easy. No problem. Just pick it up. You're, you've got this. It's not so easy because it's a book that was started, right. Um, the, the first author was writing Uh, about 3,500 years ago. And you can't go back that far. And, And, well, even the language, the language this book has written is ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek. 
and a little bit of ancient Aramaic. And none of those languages are spoken today by any people group. We have lots and lots and lots of information about those languages, so we know how to translate it. But it's not like we've got people speaking those languages today. And the histories are so far back in the past that we know some of those things, but we're not like experts. It's not like you learned ancient Babylonian history or ancient Egyptian history in, in your um, school classroom And you can understand enough of history to just easily grasp what you're reading in the Bible. There's some complicated stuff in here, and it becomes a little bit of a challenge. So it can be a difficult study. I'm not saying it's simple. But the Bible's message is simple enough that a child can understand it. In fact, I talked to a child earlier this week, and they assured me Uh, They're reading the Bible, and they assured me that they're understanding it. Not all of it, but a good chunk of it. I won't tell you who that is. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Children can understand it, but it's, it's complicated enough, complex enough, deep enough, you might say, that, that you could make it the study of your lifetime and not exhaust its treasures. And I say that word intentionally. When you go to the Bible, it's not easy, but the effort it takes to explore God's word makes the, the, the things you find, the truths you pull out of it, all the more precious for the difficult task of discovering them. For those who read and listen to this book, and I, I say read and listen because uh, that, that word in the, the Bible, hear, we, we say listen, but that word hear in the Bible is kind of two ideas. It's to let it go in your ear and take action. So it's, it's really to, to read it and to follow it. To those who read it and follow it, the Bible promises in Romans ten seventeen that faith will awaken. And the reality is when we don't read the Bible, that doubt and skepticism awaken. If you want to deal with doubt, if you've got doubts about God, about the Bible, about Christianity, about anything that, that has to do with spiritual things, start reading the Bible and God will deal with your doubt and grow your faith. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26 says that the Bible is the tool that God uses to arouse our desire for repentance and to free us from the power of Satan. Philippians 1, 9 says that, the, that love grows from the study of God's instructions John 15, 11 says that the words of God through the Bible fill your life with joy. In 1 Samuel 3, 21, we're told that it is through the Bible that God reveals himself to us. And if you want a book or a chapter in a book that talks about the value of the Bible, then turn to Psalms 119, and the whole chapter is about God's word. Psalm 119, 9 to 11 tells us that when we read the Bible, it guides our life. It is the light to our path. And in in Psalm 119, the musician who wrote it says that, he says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. It's like treasure to, to explore your word. That's in verse 14. And in verse 105 of Psalm 119, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a, a light to my path. Reading and hearing God's word is reported to repair marriages, to renew a passion for life, and even bring health and wellness to your body. It's not magic. The first word you read in the Bible isn't going to transform everything in your life. But as a result of taking God's word into our life, our lives become aligned to God's path. And, and the opportunity for joy and love and peace and, and, and health exists in God's path. 
If you want to find happiness, then make sure you have a good foundation for truth from God's word from the Bible. And maybe it's that word foundation that makes this subject one of the more difficult subjects in Christianity. Have you ever noticed that you can come to a passage and there are lots of different meanings that people come out from it? They read the Bible and they can read the exact same text and four different people can have four completely different ideas of what it means. I mean, just take the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, for example. Um, I I know of uh, uh, a a guy that I study the Bible with who believes that uh, the rich man and Lazarus defines real places and that before Jesus died, there was a uh, Hades and paradise in the middle of the earth. And that when Jesus died, he went down and he took the paradise to heaven. And uh, so for a period of time, there was paradise right by Hades. Interesting idea. Um, others, <clears throat> others say it's still there. <laughs> Wherever there is, it's, it's still right there beside each other, right? And then other com- others say, this isn't really talking about that at all. And uh, how do you know? How do you know what is true? When you read the Bible, how are you to understand it? When I think of this how to interpret Bible question, um, I have all kinds of good ideas to give you. But I know that when I give you an idea, some of my ideas that are tried and true, founded in God's word, are going to clash with some of your ideas about how to interpret the Bible. And I'm not talking about your ideas in general as far as the whole world goes. I'm talking about in this room and watching online right now. I'm going to share something with you, and you're going to say, well, I think it's this way. And, and it's when those ways of interpreting the Bible clash that uh, we come up with all these different ideas. It's how I interpret the Bible that leads me to my conclusions. And so some of the things I'm going to tell you, and I'm just going to give you three quick things today, and over the next few weeks, um, in the email that, that you need to sign up for, <laughs> I'm going to share a few more. And, uh, and, and so as I share these things, some of the things that I share with you are going to, are going to pull the foundation a little bit to the left or to the right of what, where you think it is. The basic principles of interpreting the Bible are going to move your foundation for truth. And some of the things that you believe might have to come crashing down if we interpret the Bible as the Bible is intended to be interpreted. Now, you might say, interpreting the Bible is for pastors and theologians. I'm just going to read it. I'm not an interpreter of the Bible. I'm not smart enough for that. I'm not experienced enough for that. I don't know enough about history or whatever you want to say. But that's just not true. Uh, The word that theologians use for interpreting the Bible is a great word called hermeneutics. Just say that for the fun of it. Doesn't it roll off the tongue nicely? Hermeneutics. (laughs) There's a little bit of guttural thing going on. Well, the the word hermeneutics comes from a Greek word, uh, diarmino. Diarmino is this, uh, this word that you can find in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Turn there. Open your Bible with me for a minute. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus has risen from the grave, and he's hanging out with the disciples in different places. So, you know, he just appears here and appears there. And, and here in Luke chapter 24, we find him appearing to these two guys who are sad and downcast because their Savior, the one who they thought was the Messiah, has died. 
What are they going to do? And they haven't realized that Jesus is alive again. And so he appears to them. And in verse 27 of Luke 24, he says, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That word explain is that diarmino, hermeneutics. Have you ever read the Bible and thought, oh, that's what it means? Then you are explaining the Bible just like Jesus did. And that's where we get the idea of hermeneutics. In fact, interpreting the Bible isn't any different than interpreting a Facebook post or a Twitter post, if you ever are on Twitter, or when you watch a video on YouTube, you interpret it. In fact, interpreting is essential for assimilating any bit of information into your life. You do it all the time, every day. You don't even think about it. And there are basic principles to interpreting things accurately. Anybody heard of fake news? How do you know what's fake and what's not? Those are principles of interpretation, also known, if you're using this theological term, as hermeneutics. You use it all the time. So don't be afraid of interpreting the Bible. When King Saul goes to this woman and he seeks out the guidance of some dead prophet, is the Bible describing a, a wicked king who is doing something he shouldn't do? Or is it prescribing a good idea for engaging with spiritual beings? Which is it? <laughs> you have to decide what the Bible is saying. That's called interpreting. And it's something that we do all the time. It's something that you shouldn't be afraid of doing. As you read the Bible, you'll figure out more about its stories and more about how to understand things. But I want you to notice something that Paul says. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. And if you want to do a little bit of a study that comes from this sermon, spend some time in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and you'll get some really rich stuff. And you'll learn some names you probably didn't know before. Do you know who Janice and Jambres are? Well, now you've got to read 2 Timothy chapter 3. You still won't know what Janus and Jambres is after reading the chapter. You're going to have to dig for it. Maybe send me a text or an email or something. My, my contact information is on the back of the bulletin. Um, but send me a text or an email and say, I know who Janus and Jambres are and tell me about it. I'd love that. Okay, so that's just me checking to see if you're studying what I encourage you to study. All right, so 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul encourages Timothy, be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains, correctly interprets the word of truth. Not just somebody who randomly picks a, a meaning for a text, but somebody who correctly interprets the Bible. I'd be doing you a disservice if I were to suggest that reading and explaining the Bible is simple. It's, it's complicated. But you don't need to be a theologian to understand it. The key is not knowledge and experience. It doesn't hurt to have some of those things. But you can have uh, an experienced theologian who interprets the Bible incorrectly. And you can have a farmer who interprets correctly some of the most complex prophecies of the Bible. The issue is not about knowledge or degrees or years. The issue is really about work. It's not simple. It's work. Let me give you three simple ideas. The, the, these ideas are simple. The first idea for interpreting scripture correctly is the most fundamental. And it's so astoundingly simple that you're going to, to chuckle that I even mention it all. The first principle is that you need to read it. 
Of course you need to read it, you say. How could you understand it if you don't? But, but keep in mind, if you take the Bible and, uh, and, and you read three or four verses, maybe a paragraph, and you go, huh, I wonder what, wonder what that meant. And you put it down on your kitchen table or your coffee table or your bedside stand or wherever it is that you put your Bible and you don't pick it up for a while, maybe a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years, because every time you look at it, you think, I don't know what that means. What's the point? You haven't read the Bible if you are doing that. To read the Bible, you need to, you need to actually spend some time in it. So you read a few verses and you're like, I don't know what that means. So, well, how are you going to know what it means? You got to read a little bit more. You go back and read the whole, the whole paragraph, the whole chapter, the whole book, maybe the whole Bible. I'll give you an example. If I were to tell you um, a quote from Shakespeare's plays, just completely out of context, a quote from somewhere in the middle, I bet you wouldn't be able to tell me what it means. Shall we try? This one's from A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it goes like this. The more my prayer, the lesser is my grace. Now, granted, um, even if I read the whole play, there's some Shakespeare things. I don't know what he means. But, but this one, I think that you could probably figure it out if you read the context. If you understood the whole play, then this statement would make more sense. But you and I, just reading it in, in church today, the more my prayer, the lesser my grace, it kind of sounds like it's some Christian thing. And it's confusing because more you pray, less grace. That's the, that sounds backwards, doesn't it? What is he saying? And you just won't know unless you read the play. And that's the truth about the Bible. You won't know it unless you read it. You can't substitute reading the Bible with reading things about the Bible. Reading Bible storybooks might be helpful, might give you a little bit of context, but it's not a substitute for actually reading the Bible. And listening to my sermons, however good they might be, whether you think they're good or not, that's a different discussion, but (laughs) however good my sermons might be, it's not enough once a week or once a month or however often you get to church is not enough um, to understand the Bible. And I don't care how good the preacher is. I'm sure you've found a few online that you like better than me, but there's no preacher that is a good substitute for the Bible. You reading the Bible is the only way that you can understand the Bible for yourself. The promise that the Bible uh, gives us is that when we read it, our faith will be awakened. Do you feel like the Bible is a boring old book that you can't understand? Then read it, because in reading it, you'll begin to understand it, and it will take on meaning and life and interest. Read it. I challenge you. I dare you. Read the Bible. And you might find that reading the Bible is boring because it's in comparison to something else. If you spend an hour on social media stimulating your mind with one video after the other or one post after the other, then sitting down to read the Bible and engage your mind in something that your mind hasn't been doing for a little bit, some work, some diligent thought, then eh, the Bible's going to be boring. But what if you substituted? Instead of the hour on social media, what if you spent some time with Jesus in his word? And yes, you, you buckled down to, to make your mind actually think. And you spent some time reading. Do you think that the Bible might take on some more meaning because it's no longer in contrast to these other things that are so stimulating and require so much less of your mental energy? I think it would become more interesting. Replacement therapy. The second principle is just as simple as the first and quite a bit easier you ready for an easy uh, principle? 
Ask God for help. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. You won't know what the Bible means if you come with some arrogant, I understand this, I'm smart kind of an attitude. You're going to look at what God says and you're going to be like, that's foolishness. The Bible actually says it. The, the things of God, the things that God says are wisdom, are foolishness to men. It's because we come with our own ideas of what good and bad are. But what if we lay our ideas of what's right and wrong are and what truth and error are, we lay them down and we say, God, could you tell me what you mean by this? It's, he's the one who inspired it. It's his word, right? We might as well ask him for help. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And in Psalm 119.18, the musician who wrote that, that whole psalm about God's word says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Just ask God as you open the Bible. Say, open my eyes. Open my eyes, God. And my last principle for today is also simple, but it requires a bit of work. Get the meaning from the text. There's a subtle arrogance in the heart of a person who says, yeah, I, I, can, I can see that, but uh, there is a deeper meaning here, a deeper meaning that, that I think I can figure out that maybe, maybe others haven't. We've got to be really careful with that idea. When we get the meaning from the text, we're letting the Bible tell us what we should interpret it as. And the alternative is to tell the Bible what we think the Bible should mean. Getting the meaning from the text means we, we need to be thoughtful about two big questions. One question is, what did the author mean when he wrote this to the people he was writing it to? That's, that's a fundamental question. What did the author mean? And uh, let's say that you're in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is an interesting book. You should read it someday if you haven't read it before. It's really fascinating. But you're in the book of Isaiah and you're like, who in the world is that? And, and what is that place? And there's, there's a strange name for a city I've never read before, heard about before. And you could read this passage and be completely confused because you don't understand who it was that Isaiah was writing to, when he was writing, what the circumstances politically and religiously were around his time. And you can just be like, I don't, I don't know. And if you're new to the Bible, especially, then maybe that's not the best place to start. But let me give you two suggestions on how to engage with a book like this. Um, Option number one is you say, I'm kind of new to the Bible. Let me go to something a little easier. Um, option number two is that you just dig in and figure it out by comparing Isaiah with his contemporaries. For example, Isaiah has a lot of contemporaries uh, towards the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Spend some time reading the stories about those things and you'll end up understanding Isaiah's messages better. Or pull out a Bible dictionary. Uh, there's some free ones online, uh, blueletterbible.com. And, and you just look at a word. Maybe it's the name of a city or a name of a guy. And that Bible dictionary will tell you where to find that in other places in the Bible. And you can read a little bit about each of those stories. And the more you read, the more context you have about the history of the guys and the places that Isaiah is talking about, then the more you'll understand the messages God gave to those people. But you can't just stop there. The first question is, what does this uh, author mean? What did he intend to say to the people he's writing to? But the second question is just as important because you're trying to figure out how the Bible applies to your life. And so you ask the question, what does it mean for me? What is it that God wants me to understand 
from this, in, from this reading that I'm doing. The first question is about the author's meaning. Now, that's the reading. The second question is about my application. That's the hearing. Uh, gentlemen, kids, if your wife or your mother said, dinner's ready, and you stayed seated in the same spot that you were in before she called you, she might come out and say something. Did you hear me? Dinner's ready. What does she expect when she says dinner's ready? She expects that your bottom will move from that seat to the table, right? And if your bottom isn't moving, then you haven't heard her. And that's kind of the the idea with the Bible. We need to read the Bible. We also need to hear it. We need to apply it to our lives. We need to take action from it. So what is it that the Bible is saying to me today? How does God want me to apply what I just read? Those two questions. Get the meaning from the text by asking, what does the author mean to the people he's talking to? And then by asking, what does God want me to do with it today in my circumstances? And like I said, if you're reading a book like Isaiah and you're finding yourself overwhelmed, there's too much digging that you have to do in order to understand something, um, then, then go to maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and spend some time in Jesus' stories. And the, the meanings can be somewhat complex, but there's usually an explanation in just a few verses after what you just read. So if you're not understanding something, keep reading a bit in the Gospels and it'll become clear. They're beautiful. They're not as difficult. But if, if you find yourself in Isaiah... What I want you to not do, what I want you to not do is assume. Don't make assumptions. Don't read this and be like, oh, I saw that, that word somewhere else in the Bible. Um, let, me, let me put onto this word what I think it means. That's the danger we have. And, and it's, a, it's a problem. I can understand why we do it. It makes it easier. We don't have to work as hard. But don't presume to apply meaning to the text that the author didn't give it, at least until you find, number one, what the author originally intended to say, and ideally, number two, another inspired prophet of God who says, you know that thing that he said that that meant such and such? It also applies to this. And when the Bible tells us that we can interpret something in more than one way, then the Bible has the authority to do that. But let's be careful that we don't do that. Let the text tell us what the text means. The American Bible Society tells a story about a young lady named Alima. And she had problems that most of us don't have. She lives in, in um, a difficult country in Africa where there's lots of poverty. If she wants to get some basic necessities, she has to go to a black market shop that charges exorbitant prices. And she doesn't have very many opportunities for income. And so they live subsistence living. Uh, One day, she, uh, in her struggle for food and all the other things that she struggled with, she decided she would go to church. And she went to this church. And in that church, she heard the gospel. And she met Jesus. And she was handed, for free, a Bible. And she's handed this Bible as a gift from the American Bible Society because of people who say the Bible needs to be in the hands of people, not just in the hands of pastors. And so she starts to read the Bible. And she said this, receiving the Bible is like receiving the Savior in my life. The Bible changed my life. Whenever I open my Bible, I feel God in the scriptures and can interact with him. The Bible is God in my hands and heart. Without the Bible, my life would be terrible. And this is how she describes it. Without a Bible in Jesus... I was just living, I was just existing rather. 
existing without hope. But Jesus brought me from existing to living. When I got my first Bible, I felt that I had something to live for. I'd suggest that loving the Bible, not feeling like it's boring old book that's stuffy and has nothing good for me, but feeling like this is precious, this is essential, this is life itself, requires poverty. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you recognize your need? Are you spiritually in poverty, saying, I can't do this for myself. I need something from God, from the source of life. Maybe, maybe you need to step back from your life a little bit and recognize that your apparent riches are really not doing it for you. That you have a poverty in an area of your life that requires the Bible. And the only solution is God's word. Are you hungry? Are you dissatisfied? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We need to recognize our poverty. But if you are in poverty, how can you buy? How can you pay for something of great value? Turn with me to the last text, Isaiah chapter 55. And look at this. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. It, it makes me want to cry when I read these texts. Is anyone thirsty? I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. You read it from your text. But here it goes. Is anyone thirsty? Come and drink. Even if you have no money, come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? And why pay for food that does not do you any good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food, treasure. And then jump forward to verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from the earth and don't return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be. So shall my word be. Right? That goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word, the Bible, the living word of God, it won't enter your life without doing something, without transforming you and changing you and making you come alive. It will turn your life from mere existence to hope and joy and possibility. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I commend to you the Bible, God's living word.